Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. And welcome to the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. I'm Vicky. And I am Janelle. We're back again with another episode this week. We are coming off some really fun stuff. We just did our live show in Elgin, which may or may not be up at some point. <laughs> we'll see what happens. You didn't lose yes. the, the thing, did you? <laughs> no, not yet. I was okay, just over at Tips yesterday. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I meant to bring the episode. It was recorded on a single SD card. <laughs> <laughs> that is the only copy in existence is on this SD card and Dear I God. was entrusted with it and I wanted to take it with me to Tiff's yesterday mm-hmm. so that I could shift the responsibility to her and she was like no <laughs> <laughs> she's like I don't want that <laughs> <laughs> but I loved it here I still have it though so that'll be coming to you guys in the next couple of weeks but in the meantime we have a great episode for you how are you doing Janelle you know I'm breathing and that's about all I can say. <laughs> is that the only silver lining right now? Is that you are physically still breathing? <laughs> yes. Ah, <laughs> oh, you know, if you have ever been in grad school, you know how dumb, crazy, busy you are. But on top of that, being an artist in grad school, you have to do shows. So mm. I'm working on a installation for a biennial. I'm working on a hundred papers that I have to write. So Uh, all the normal stuff. You know, I don't sleep and I have miniature heart attacks daily. So fun. (laughs) Well, I'm glad that you are with us today. It wouldn't be the same without you. I took some uh, ashwagandha before before this. So I don't know what that is. It's a a wonderful (laughs) herb that helps you with your mood stability and... It helps you sleep, too, if you uh, take a slightly higher dose as well. But yeah, it's ashwagandha and St. John's wort are, are herbs that will help with uh, anxiety and depression. They're calming, just like chamomile mm. and lavender. I know another herb that's pretty calming. Oh, no, not for me. <laughs> the best kind of herb. <laughs> Weed makes me anxious. Um. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's not for everybody. Um, no. <laughs> anyway, that's not what the show's about. <laughs> this show is about crab, which we're going to get to. But first, let's head over to the newsroom. This week, our story comes from Moscow, Russia where a woman is incredibly upset with her ex-husband. I don't know if you saw this or not, but I was like, it was definitely like an only in Russia kind of a moment, for sure. So 59-year-old Valeria Udalova broke into the cryogenics lab of her ex-husband, 41-year-old Danila Medvedev. Sure. There she drained the liquid nitrogen from giant dewar flasks that contained both frozen bodies and detached brains of people who had hoped to be resurrected in the future loaded them onto trucks and then left okay yep police were called they managed to stop the truck carrying the remains but they were unable to catch valeria herself who managed to leave with someone's brains it was also reported that the bodies were from both people from britain and from the u.s okay and that's the story. Did it's she one of these- say why? <laughs> no. The article <laughs> that I was reading that – so it's an article from The Sun that didn't really – it didn't really specify, like, why she was so upset. <laughs> Just that she was. It's like, fuck you. I'm going to take these frozen braids and leave. I wonder if he was, like, if you – you know, like, some sort of backhanded statement to her about how she's not smart and it didn't have a brain. Oh, my God. If uh, this is going to be like, oh, I don't have a brain, do I? Here's all these brains. (laughs) I'll show you who doesn't have a brain. Mm -hmm. You, now that I took it. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So I guess the moral of the story is if you own a cryogenics lab, don't piss off your partner. I don't don't know. Cue the music the scarecrow sang in The Wizard of Oz. (laughs) Yeah. If I only had a brain. Right. (laughs) All right. We'll move right along to Netflix and Kill, which this week is an Amazon Prime and Kill, because I would be remiss if we did not talk about. No. (laughs) Yeah. If we didn't talk about Lou LaRich. Oh. (laughs) Have you watched this yet? I have not. Okay. Vicky, oh, sweet Vicky, I wish I could watch things. <laughs> right now, well, I'm not watching anything. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. So this came out just like, I think like a week before we're recording this episode. And it has become the talk of the internet. And I did go out of my way to like watch this for the for our episode today because mm-hmm. I was like, we have to talk about it while it's still blowing up. So are you familiar with the clothing company LuLaRoe? Yes, I hate it. Yeah. <laughs> so for the record. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so Lou the Rich chronicles the rise and sort of fall of multi-level marketing company LuLaRoe in this four-part documentary series. The documentary includes interviews with many past and current retailers as well as owners and founders Mark and Dean Stidham. Within four years of being in operation, the company had more than $1 billion in sales and 80,000 consultants, which if you know anything about multi-level marketing or pyramid schemes, 
you would know that this is not a sustainable business model, especially when you get to that many consultants. Mm -hmm. At this point, now in 2021, LuLaRoe has been subject to many civil lawsuits, including a 2017 class action that alleged the company's proprietary software was calculating incorrect sales tax. Another 2017 $1 billion class action in California alleging LuLaRoe is a pyramid scheme. You don't say. <laughs> right? A 2018 suit from clothing supplier Providence Industries for $49 million claiming LuLaRoe was insolvent and had was behind on payments, but also that there's like all of these shell companies that LuLaRoe is funneling all of this money into. The impression that I got is like the money started getting funneled into these, like all of these LLCs when the Stidham sort of got whiffed that there were going to be a bunch of lawsuits coming. Hide the money, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Classic. There is also a 2019 suit from the state of Washington, uh, which is probably the biggest one to date. It alleged that the company is a pyramid scheme. This suit was uh, settled in February of 2021 for $4.74 million, although the company was able to uh, deny any wrongdoing, as you so often do with the settlement with large companies. Mm-hmm. It is a great documentary, first of all, because... Deanne and Mark are very interesting people. I mean, they're kind of, I think when you we think about people who start these kind of multi-level marketing companies, like they definitely fit that sort of like standard in your head where they are always talking about how we started this company because we wanted to help women empower themselves and all of these stay-at-home moms to like work mm-hmm. and bring in all this money and blah, 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 blah. But I almost wonder if, like, they came on – because they were, like, fully involved in this documentary that – I wonder if they came on thinking we're going to be able to tell our stories and, like, exonerate ourselves in a way, Mm -hmm. you know? And it – Yeah. Honestly, was not a good look. Yeah, which is – I mean, that sometimes happens with documentarians. They don't really give off the entire story of why they want to do this. And then it Mm -hmm. kind of leads to misleading the people that they are, you know, interviewing. So that's that's not ethical, by the way, guys. So don't do that. (laughs) Yeah. Although I will say I don't think there's anything wrong when you're making a documentary like this to say – we are looking at the history of LuLaRoe as a company and looking at some of these larger questions of why everything went wrong. Because in this case, there is a lot of issues with the company as far as uh, product becoming mm-hmm. defective over time, the return policy for the product changing and therefore putting like mil- like thousands of women in debt, mm-hmm. the structure of the company, how women are making their money, the way that leadership is treated and how they're told to like train and onboard people i mean there's like a lot of really sketchy shit right so i don't think there's anything wrong with being like we're just going to tell the story of your company when everybody knows the story of that company is like bullshit right Mm -hmm. i don't know i part of me is like i'm sure they were fully aware of what was happening and they're like we'll talk because we know we'll be able to exonerate ourselves but like yeah that's not that's not how that great (laughs) no 
There's also a lot of this, this idea of like pushing the wrong ideals for what a woman is. You know, you always have to be pretty and made up, subservient to your husband. Mm. No, there is <laughs> the uh, the owners, Mark and Deanne, are Mormon. So there is Wolf. sort of these like Mormon <laughs> undertones yeah. of, you know, female subservience and working for your husband and doing all of the things that he asks and stepping aside when the time is right type of a thing. Mm-hmm. All bullshit. Anyway. Worth a watch. When you get a moment, I think you should watch it because it's pretty short, but it's like, oh my God, it's really interesting. Because I knew I like a lot of short people ones. were selling Boulareau, so. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It's like every person we ever went to high school with comes mm-hmm. out of the woodwork. They friend you on Facebook and they're like, look at this. I do tummy tea. Look at I exercise mm-hmm. weekly tummy with tummy tea. tea. And I'm like, girl, yeah, shut the fuck up. You ain't I never cannot- been fat, so stop. Right. <laughs> I cannot tell you how many people that we went to high school with does that and like the it works bullshit and yeah yeah, it's a lot of exercise and clothing related shenanigans and i'm like do you remember what i looked like and what i was all about in high school i'm not buying your fucking leggings okay right (laughs) have i ever worn them no (laughs) now i will say full disclosure I do own two pieces from LuLaRoe. How dare you? (laughs) That I bought when the company was really getting big. Somebody had an at-home party. They were really cute. One of them I still wear. It's still, it was before the like, the the diminishing quality of the garments, I would say. Mm -hmm. But I have since not bought anything further because to be quite frank, it was really fucking expensive. Yeah. um, For something very basic. I was like, eh, no thanks. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we're going to move along. This is that part of the show where we say content may not be appropriate for all listeners. We will be talking about some murder. <laughs> oh, really? Child death and some pretty, pretty nasty things. So heads up on that. But today... Are you ready? I mean, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we are talking about familicide. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked about familicide before. It's been a little while. Um, also known as the family annihilator. But I feel like for some reason, I've been seeing a lot of news about cases of familicide that have happened within the last like one to two years. I don't know if that is like any correlation with just like people spending more times with their family being in quarantine <laughs> or yeah. I don't know. That's the only thing that I can think of that has changed from the last time that we covered this to now. I mean, we're just a general upset with people having parents. I mean, that's how I feel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, there is a lot. I, there is a lot and it's a lot of, uh, I noticed a lot more men. Yes. Uh, being involved, usually, like, when we grew up in the 90s, it was a lot of women taking mm-hmm. out their families, or specifically their children. So it's definitely, I don't know, it's strange. If you listen to the last podcast on the left, they do a lot of jokes when they talk about 
male serial killers who kill their families about how they have to hold the line. They have to be the man in the relationship and they do it in a joking way. But I really feel like there's truth in that. Like uh, there's a lot of people who, who grew up with anxiety and as an adult, they don't know how to cope. And so they just lose their goddamn mind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That sounds about right. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we are going to start with a story from New Zealand. And this is about the Lundy murders. So this New Zealand family consisted of 38-year-old Christine Marie Lundy, her husband, 43-year-old Mark Edward Lundy, and their seven-year-old daughter, Amber Grace Lundy. Now, Christine was involved in many community activities, including their local girl guides, which is like Girl Scouts. Mm Mm-hmm. Christine and Mark owned a kitchen sink business, and in 1999, Mark also purchased a vineyard in Hawke's Bay. The family, by all accounts, was filled with love and caring, and there didn't really appear to be any signs that the family was in turmoil. That is, until Christine and Amber were found dead. Now, on August 30th, 2000, a number of people attempted to call the Lundy home, After several unanswered attempts, concerned family members decided to go to the house and make sure everything was okay. James Wiggery, who is uh, Christine's brother, decided to knock on the door, and when he didn't get an answer, he broke into the house to see what was going on. There, he discovered Amber's body face down with a brutal head wound in the doorway of her parents' bedroom. At that point, James called emergency services immediately, and it was only after that only after he called emergency services that he noticed Christine's body face up on her bed with multiple injuries to her face and arms. The entire scene was coated in blood, including the walls and floors. Mark Lundy was not in the area at the time of the discovery. And by the time that he returned home, police had the entire scene blocked off. So this is the start to... What is going to become kind of a weird little story? (laughs) So Mark wasn't at the house when all of this happened. He had actually been out of town on business and had spent the night at the Foreshore Motor Lodge in Wellington. It was he who got in touch with his brother-in-law, James, to go and check on the family after he had failed to get a hold of them on the phone. Now, according to the case that the Crown would later present, Mark had driven to Wellington for business. He then checked into a hotel around 5 p.m. and received a call from his wife and daughter. He was told at that time that the two were heading to McDonald's for dinner. And they also found that there were two other calls made from his cell phone, one to a business partner at Hawks Bay and the second to an escort service in Patone around 11 p.m. Now, at this point in like the initial investigation, Mark appeared to have an airtight alibi and wasn't in town on the night of the murders. But uh, upon further investigation, police did find a receipt for the McDonald's trip that the the Lundy said they were going to take. They found this receipt at the Lundy home and they discovered that Christine had placed a phone call to a friend around 7 p.m. So they were still alive at 7 p.m. Mm-hmm. There were also reports of a suspicious jogger in the area at approximately 7.20 p.m. that evening. And they also found that the family computer in the home had been switched off at 10.52 p.m. 
Authorities were also able to determine that Christine and Amber had been bludgeoned to death with a tomahawk-like weapon or a small axe. The bodies were collected and taken in for an autopsy and then subsequently released to the family on September 7th, 2000 for funeral proceedings. During the funeral, which was somewhat televised in New Zealand, Mark was seen collapsing from grief as he left the church. I definitely get very much like there's been other cases where they televise a funeral and the parents are showing some really strange behavior. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of the one and I'm trying to remember the woman's name who was like, they were like spraying silly string on the grave and like blowing bubbles and stuff. And it was oh. her son. I remember, I remember the images, but yeah, I don't remember which case that was. Yeah. It's definitely giving me like those kind of vibes, sort mm-hmm. of like it was just overly dramatic. Yeah. One of the more damning descriptions of his actions at the funeral comes from Mike White with Stuff.co.nz. Quote, And remember him at Christine and Amber's funeral, all wailing and collapsing, overplayed grief in dark suit and glasses. That's how it was seen by the public. And for 20 years, that's the lens through which we've considered Mark Lundy and his claims he didn't murder his wife and daughter. Mark Lundy, the bad acting ham and bumbling fool who was a vile scheming killer, a figure of ridicule, yet a totem of evil. Mark Lundy, a caricature of the gauche and grisly, at once laughable, yet malevolent. End quote. Wowzers. <laughs> right. Some real colorful language in there. Mm-hmm. And I would say, like, this is how much of the public saw it at the time was like, okay, like, overly grieving can also be suspicious. Mm-hmm. We'll see what you think of it when the rest of the evidence (laughs) piles up. (laughs) So police investigated the murders for a full six months before finally arresting Mark Lundy for the murders of his wife and daughters. Once this case began working its way through the court system is when things get really interesting. And this is actually the piece that really drew me to this case. One, because I find like the way court systems in other countries work very interesting because a lot of Mm -hmm. times they're pretty different to our own. But also because this whole thing is a little sketchy. So during Mark's initial trial, the prosecution laid out its version of events. So I'm going to tell you all this, and then I want to I want to know what you think about all of this evidence that the Crown brought up. Okay. So the Crown's initial version of events alleged that Mark had murdered Christine and Amber for the insurance payout. Just days before the murders, the life insurance policies had been increased from 200000 to 500000 This was followed up with evidence that the Lundy's kitchen sink business was failing and slowly moving into debt. Thanks to undigested McDonald's french fries that were found in Amber's stomach, the Crown also alleged that the time of death was around 7 p.m. and that Mark had driven back to the house from the hotel, murdered his wife and child, and then drove back to the hotel where the phone calls were later placed from. They also found a shirt inside Mark's luggage that had – it was like the shirt itself was inside out and had been packed in the luggage – Christine's DNA was later found on the shirt, and prosecutors alleged that it had been worn the night of the murders. For the trial, they reached out to pathologist Dr. Rodney Miller, who was from Dallas, Texas, who worked specifically with immunohistochemistry, or IHC. Dr. Miller took a mucus-like small stain from the shirt, tested it, and determined the stain tested positive for brain or spinal cord tissue from Christine. 
This seemed to be the strongest evidence as there was no other physical evidence tying Mark to the crime and the murder weapon was never found. So thoughts on what the crown was presenting. It doesn't, I mean, that's just like a lot of sciencey jargon and it, I don't know. It doesn't seem like it really ties him to much. Yes. And that whole digested food thing, it was just giving me John Bonet Ramsey like flashbacks. Right. <laughs> right. And it does give you an idea of when the murders happened, right? Mm-hmm. But it is totally like that kind of Jean Bonet vibe. Yeah. <laughs> so there are some really obvious glaring problems with this case. So we're going to start with this idea that Mark was driving back and forth from the hotel to the house and then back to the hotel. So the timeline is said to have worked out like this. Mark spoke to Christine by phone at 5.43 p.m., He was in Patone and she was in Palmerston North, which is approximately 140 kilometers or around 87 miles away. He then drove to Palmerston North, murdered his wife and child, hid all of the evidence, manually changed the clock on the computer so that it appeared to have been turned off later, changed his clothes, put on a wig, and then drove back to Patone by 8.28 p.m. So between... Basically, 5.45 and 8.30, they're saying this is all of this driving back and forth, the murders, the cleanup, everything happened in that, it's like two, maybe three hour-ish period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, know. I don't know. You'd have to be driving kind of fast to just make it there and back. Yeah. And, and I believe in one of the articles I read, it, they said something like he was going to have to be driving 72 kilometers an hour there and 75 kilometers an hour back mm-hmm. which is pulled the fuck over <laughs> right hopefully right <laughs> so following him getting back to patone according to the crown he then continued to make calls to his business partner and the sex worker when he returned that evening now a private investigator attempted to replicate this trip in 2004 and claimed it was impossible The second big issue actually arises from the life insurance policies. Mm -hmm. So when Mark had signed up for the increase in coverage, his agent at the time informed the family that the policy wouldn't go into effect until the policy documents were sent out, which was going to take a couple of days. Mm -hmm. The murders occurred only four days after the paperwork had been signed and the policy documents had not arrived at the house yet. And so the defense argued that Mark couldn't have been aware whether or not the policy was in effect at the time of the murders um, and sort of dismissed this as the reason for motive. And indeed, the policy hadn't gone into effect at the time the murders were committed, the new <laughs> policy. Finally, the the biggest piece of evidence, which is the DNA, has some of the biggest flaws. And mm. I'm sure you all, if you've listened to this show before, know how we feel about junk science. Yes. This definitely lands in the the junk science realm, I would say. So, of course, as someone who is neither a scientist or a medical professional, I had no idea about this particular like IHC testing. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll learn a little bit about it. So 
Before prosecutors contacted Dr. Miller from Dallas, Texas, they actually reached out to another neuropathologist based in New Zealand, Dr. Hang Tio. So this is what D Magazine had to say about uh, Dr. Tio's thoughts on the sample. Quote, Tio was not confident about the sample and told the detective that the cells had degenerated badly, such that he did not want to give testimony in the court. When he looked at the slide, he commented that he did not think Mark Lundy should be convicted of the murder on the strength of the cells, end quote. It's also worth saying that IHC has been criticized by the FDA as being subjective and variable because it is highly reliant on methodology. And up until Dr. Miller used the IHC testing for Mark Lundy, it had never been used for that purpose before. So it was the first time. During the trial, there was also these questions of the cleanliness of the lab where the sample was tested, as well as the possibility that the samples may have been contaminated because this whole time they had been stored in paper envelopes, stored and transported in paper envelopes. Highly reliable. Instead of like plastic sealed bags, like sterile plastic sealed bags. What the fuck? Even like when they brought them over from New Zealand into the U.S., they were put into into paper bags and physically flown on a plane over. You know how we are with kits and testing and things, so it's not much different other places. <laughs> it's, it's like, what the fuck, guys? Even if you don't have a scientific background, like, I feel like it's pretty obvious that a paper envelope is going to let all sorts of contaminants and things in. Like, it's not sealable, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Oh, my God. So Mark himself took the stand, something rarely, if ever, recommended. Yes. Do not do it. And (laughs) honestly, like, as you probably would have expected, it did not help his case, really, at all. (laughs) Mark changed his accounts of events multiple times and then disputed evidence provided by his own brother. The defense did attempt to dispute the brain tissue evidence by pointing out that there was blood and tissue splattered everywhere, including the walls, bed, and floor around the bodies. But his car, glasses, wedding ring, and other shoes and other clothes were all tested for blood and tissue and none was ever found. The jury deliberated for seven hours before returning a guilty verdict, sentencing Mark to a minimum non-parole period of 17 years. So, of course, Mark appealed this decision, which was rejected, um, and his original non-parole period was increased from 17 to 20 years, which would have made him eligible for parole in 2022. Now, in 2013, the case was brought before the UK Privy Council, which is like a really interesting little judicial body that I have never heard of. So... And this, I'll tell you what, a lot of this goes all the way back to, like, colonialism and all of these mm-hmm. British-owned things. So since the original trial took place in New Zealand prior to the establishment of the New Zealand Supreme Court, which wasn't established until 2004, which I also find a little crazy. Yeah. The case was eligible to be brought before the Privy Council. Now, the Privy Council is made up of mainly justices from the UK Supreme Court and senior judges from the Commonwealth. And this is from Wikipedia, admittedly, quote, 
The Privy Council formerly acted as the High Court of Appeal for the entire British Empire other than the UK itself. It continues to hear judicial appeals from some other independent Commonwealth countries, as well as Crown dependencies and British overseas territories. That's how it ended up there. Citing doubt over the methods used during the brain matter testing and new evidence that had been presented to the council, they vacated the sentence and remanded the case down to the lower courts for retrial. As for Dr. Miller, our lovely brain tissue, quote unquote, expert, (laughs) he continues to claim his testing is completely accurate, saying, quote, I can say with 100% certainty that the tissue tissue on Mr. Lundy's shirt was central nervous system tissue, not 99.999% certainty, 100%, end quote. No, sir. That's not how science works. <laughs> it's not at all how but, science works. But Janelle, he's he's one hundred percent. No, certain. No, even if you really do think that, no, you test, you test, and you test, and it's never one hundred percent accuracy ever. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. So the retrial took place in twenty fifteen, and the crown. At by this point, had made significant changes to his case. So now they were saying that Mark didn't murder Christine and Amber in the three-hour window, but instead drove home in the middle of the night after he had already been with the sex worker to murder his wife and daughter. Which is weird because it completely disregards this evidence of undigested food. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's fine. I guess we'll just ignore ignore (laughs) that evidence and the rest of it just falls into place. I guess they again claimed that they had the tissue sample found on Mark's shirt tested again by Dr. Letitia in the Netherlands. Again, the tests were developed specifically for this case and have not been used before or since. (laughs) Sounds legit. This time, the jury deliberated for 16 hours before returning another guilty verdict, appealing the conviction again. In 2018, it was once again dismissed. This time, the courts did rule that the Crown's RNA evidence was inadmissible, which was the new, like, DNA evidence. Well, Mm -hmm. RNA, but the new, like, scientific evidence. But insisted that no substantial miscarriage of justice had occurred. Sure. (laughs) Mark did attempt to appeal to the Supreme Court and in 2019 was granted leave to do so. He was denied yet again when the court stated, quote, the other evidence establishes beyond a reasonable doubt that Mr. Lundy murdered Christine and Amber Lundy. End quote. Mark continues to maintain his innocence, saying that while he respects the jury's opinion, there is no way that he could have committed these crimes, and he will continue to do everything he can until the truth comes out. So at this point, he's still in in jail. His first parole date will actually come next year in 2022, and I guess we'll see what happens then. Yikes. Yes. (laughs) So what I'm curious, what do you think about the way this case was handled and i don't do you have any thoughts on whether he may be innocent or guilty i mean that would be a tight timeline but i think if he did do it it was an accomplice obviously Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah 
I definitely think that I don't know that I'm set on whether or not he did it. Like, I don't know Mm -hmm. that I, if I have an opinion on whether he's innocent or guilty, but I do feel like he should not have been convicted on the evidence that was presented at trial. Oh yeah. A thousand percent. That is not evidence. It's all, it's like hearsay. Yeah. (laughs) And honestly, the fact that the court was like, there wasn't that this, this scientific evidence was inadmissible, but it wasn't enough to be a miscarriage of justice. I think is bullshit. Yeah. Because I think juries are, even if they don't understand all of the scientific evidence, I think they're a little bit more susceptible to it because it is presented as like scientific fact. Yeah. When a lot of times, a lot of things, you know, a lot of stuff that they're doing is ex- experimental at first. Yeah. Um, which means that, you know, that shouldn't be used in a court of law unless mm-hmm. there is, uh, what is it called? Like, you, you prove it. There's a history. There's a term for that. Yeah. So I definitely – but, you know, we're – it's interesting because there's a lot of things that draw similarities with other cases that are happening right now. hmm And, yeah, a lot of people get stuck on, like, DNA evidence and and – autopsy evidence and when they present scientists and in a court when they give testimony you know it's they're reliable right heavy quotes on that right i don't know sometimes i get a little weary that people are trying to solve all of these like cold cases with with dna evidence because it's like there's degradation, there's issues mm-hmm. of contamination, as you demonstrated by the fact that they were putting things in paper bags. So it's like, yeah. even if you have the method and it's tested and it's correct, there's still humans involved and there's still human error. Mm-hmm. So there's like, there's a lot of issues. <laughs> yeah. I think at this point, like with my own understanding of the way forensics have progressed over the last like 20 years and science has progressed over the last like 20 years i think some of this more scientific evidence is good like it's good to have but you need to it cannot be the only thing Mm -hmm. to tie somebody somewhere like you have to be able to have multiple pieces of evidence to back it up yeah and really like make that claim strong and i don't at least in this case like the extra pieces of evidence that they had we're not strong enough to back up that single because they also talk too a lot about this DNA transfer where it's entirely possible that Christine's DNA transferred onto the garment when she was like folding his clothes after she was doing yeah. laundry. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, so I think there is a lot of question as to like, if it wasn't Mark Lundy, who was it? But I definitely feel like he shouldn't have been convicted on the amount of evidence that was provided at trial mm-hmm. is where I'm at with this. This is a really the Lundy murders. It's a really interesting case. It is a fucking rabbit hole. So if you have a, a spare couple of hours, I would say look into it because it can. I gave you guys this is like the condensed version. Mm-hmm. So like, definitely take a look at it because there's a lot of like leads and stuff going on with this case. But that was the the Lundy murders. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. 
In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I wanted to look at a lesser known form of familicide. Um, so I started looking at parasite, which if you're not familiar, parasite is when a child kills their parents. Yes. So we don't cover like a whole lot of child killers. Um, so I want to take a look at this phenomenon. And of course, like the first most well-known one that you can think about is the Menendez brothers, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. But The phenomenon of parasite isn't that common, which I find a little surprising, um, because I for sure thought it would be. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think there's, again, this is like something within the last like two or three years, I've seen a lot more cases of it happening. Mm Mm-hmm. But like, even with the the Menendez brothers, like, do you remember how old they were when that all They were teenagers. Okay. Yeah, because it generally, it seems to be like teenage boys that will yes so looking at some of the statistics um they kind of looked at age groups and most of the offenders do commit in their teen years but they say that one in five cases of parasite is committed by someone under the age of 18 Really? So that is also kind of an interesting statistic. Wow. And then when they compare it across countries, the case that I looked at, you know, stated the low levels in Australia and the UK, and then only 29 cases in one year in Canada, but still like 29 cases in one year in Canada. It's a lot. Seems like a lot. Yeah. Uh, More often than not, it is males, but there have been cases of women, girls, committing parasite. So the particular one I wanted to discuss is the Ewell family murders. So this is going to be a U.S. case and specifically in California. So Dale Ewell and Glee Mitchell were a moderately well-off couple living on the bluffs of the San Joaquin River in California. Dale Ewell was an Air Force veteran turned businessman who specialized in the sale of small airplanes with his company, Western Piper Sales Incorporated. Now, this company effectively made Dale a millionaire, and his wife, Glee, was really devoted to philanthropy for her whole life. So she she had a really interesting background, though. 
When she was young, she briefly acted as a Spanish translator for the CIA during the 50s. And then later held a seat at the State Bar of California Committee that evaluated prospective judges. Okay, that would be interesting. They're very well connected. They're wealthy. The couple did have two kids. They were Tiffany Ewell in 1967, and then later their son Dana came in uh, in 1971. So very classic yuppie names, Tiffany and Dana. Yeah, yeah. In April of 1992 the family would change forever. So this was Easter weekend, and the family went about their like normal business. That Sunday, Dale, Glee, and Tiffany departed from their beach house to head home. Dale was on his way back from the trip, and he took his private plane back. Um, he flew into it, the hangar and then drove home from there. Meanwhile, Glee and Tiffany drove home and arrived first, both in their vehicle. Now, little did they know that they were going to be walking into a trap. At home was Glee and her daughter, Tiffany. They get there. Tiffany was on a small break from grad school. She decided to spend time with her parents. But Dana actually decided to spend the holiday weekend with his girlfriend, Monica Zent, and her father, who just happened to be an FBI agent named John. Oh, my God. They were in San Francisco, which is like 200 miles away. Tiffany was home with the parents. They come back. So upon entering, Glee and Tiffany came into the house in the afternoon, and they were met with a stranger. They were shot at rapid fire as soon as they came through the door. Tiffany was shot six times. She entered first, and Glee was shot four. Half an hour later, Dale arrived home and entered through the garage. He, too, was met with bullets. He was shot only once in the back of the head. Two days later, Dana contacted some family friends and stated that he was not able to get a hold of his parents. Now, this isn't unusual. The couple was always really busy with work. They'd often take off on short flights for fun. If you have a small plane, that's what you do. (laughs) Yeah. But the family friends didn't really think anything odd and nothing was done. Now, it's Tuesday, April 12th. Juanita Avenida arrived at the Ewell home. Juanita was the Ewell's longtime housekeeper. Upon entering the house through the kitchen, she came around to the front of the house to see pools of blood and the body of Tiffany, Glee, and Dale scattered on the floor. Now, the house had been ransacked and it was in shambles, and Juanita ran next door to the neighbors and they called the police, and soon they arrived. And she took them over to the house and she mentioned, like, The son was not there. He's missing. So there should be, you know, Dana's not here. He should be here. She did mention that he was on, he went on a trip with his girlfriend over Easter. So the police were like, all right, let's contact him and find out where he's at. So while they're trying to get a hold of Dana, they begin investigating the scene. Now, there was no immediate forensic evidence, but it did appear that the ransacking had been staged. There were no broken windows, no doors appeared to be forced, and the alarm was actually turned off. Huh. Nothing of value had been taken either. So was it like one of these where like somebody came in and just like threw a bunch of shit around? Yeah. Type of a deal? That's what it appeared to be. Okay. Now they found bullet casings and some green fibers around the bullet wound on Glee. This was pretty much all that they had. The police spent four days at the scene investigating and came to the conclusion that a person had been lying in wait in the home. They perhaps knew 
them or knew someone who knew them. That's how they got in. And they also brought a gun and used bullets that they found in the home. Okay. So a little strange. The police then turned to investigating the backgrounds of the Yules to see if anyone they knew might be of interest. Of course, Glee's time at the CIA was of interest. <laughs> right. Searching court records, Detective learned another interesting fact that Dale Yule had sold planes for aircraft dealer Frank Lambie. Now, Frank Lambie, in 1971, oversaw a large Mexico to Fresno drug smuggling ring. Oh, my gosh. I feel like the history <laughs> of this family and their connections just keep getting more interesting. Mm hmm. Lambie was jailed and Yule took over the dealership. The investigators wanted to pursue this theory because they wanted to see if there was like bad blood between Lambie and the Yules. And they also speculated that Yule might have been involved in the drug smuggling ring. But after a lot of research and talking to people, they discovered that that wasn't the case. He was just getting in contact with Lambie, being in the right place at the right time. And was not actually involved in any of the drug smuggling. I do find this hard to believe because a who owns a small plane and is not involved in some sort of nefarious activity. Right. <laughs> no <Yeah>. one. <laughs> <laughs> so as the sole survivor of the family, Dana was the beneficiary of their estate and also became the prime suspect. <laughs> Even though he had an alibi, there was something suspicious about his behavior following the murders of his family. Oh boy, investigators, here we go. Yeah, investigators were like, mm, something's not right with this boy. They noted that he was really shaken and visibly upset by their death, and they didn't think that that was not disingenuous. They were like, that seemed like he was legitimately upset. Mm -hmm. But he seemed far more concerned about the reading of his parents' will. Of course. Of course. We come back with the insurance and the wills. He it's always about the money. Yeah, exactly. He immediately came back from his trip. And then entered into the house and was living there. Okay. Now, the upsetting part about this is that it was still a crime scene, basically, and there was still blood everywhere, all up oh and down the walls. Oh, my God. So you didn't even wait for, like, the cleanup to finish? No. Wow. So he also, upon coming home and staying there, invited people over to the home. And shortly after this... His uncle, which was Dale's brother, contacted authorities about his nephew. Now, his uncle claimed that upon the reading of the wills, Dana erupted in anger when he found out that the trust provisions of the will would keep him from actually having full access to their $8 million estate until he was 30. Oh, my God. And how old was he at the time? Do you I remember? believe he was 23, 24. Okay. So, so a he had a little time. bit. Yeah. Yeah. He even shouted, why would my parents do this to me? Oh, my God. <laughs> Poor me. Right? Now, the one stipulation of the will that was overlooked is that Dana would receive $300,000 in proceeds from an insurance policy that was not subject to trust provisions. So that was kind of overlooked. His parents probably didn't realize that that was the case. Yeah. Now, his uncle made every attempt to keep him from getting this money, but he was unsuccessful. There was nothing that they could do. So the police were really suspicious of this, and they decided to dive in and start following Dana and digging into his past. Now, this is where it gets really funny. <laughs> Murder's funny, guys. 
Oh, God. This fucking twerp. Play acted his way through college. Now, what I mean by this is that he pretended to be somebody else, basically. What? When he left home from, for the University of Santa Clara, he left and, and arrived at school with a BMW dressed in designer clothes. Okay? He attended classes with a suit on and carried a briefcase. Now, this was all an act because he had to live up to a persona that he had created. He told his classmates that he had been a stockbroker at 18 and currently owned a company that grossed nearly $3 million a year. Mm. But he's so humble that he started going to a small university in Santa Clara. Good story. Real good story, bro. (laughs) Yeah, that's a very, like... Zuckerbergian type of yes I'm just so humble I just wanted to go to a college where nobody knew me exactly so oh he's doing all this stuff They there was even a fucking newspaper article in Santa Clara about this kid that was like boy wonder genius attends university did they still like was he still going by his real name yeah so he went by his real name um, but he was, like, weaving the story, but there was no evidence. But people were, yeah. like, eating it up, and there was even a newspaper article ran about him. And nobody, like, thought to fact check this. Oh, my God. It was the 80s. Everyone was on cocaine. So Yeah. <laughs> he also had a really strange friendship with a man named Joel Radvovich. Now, Radvovich was this grungy skater boy and very introverted. And then in comparison, you have Dana, who's this, like, Classic California guy who was, like, really outgoing, very, like, Southern Cali dude. But the two, like, met in college, and they were, like, absolutely joined at the hip. Shortly after the murders, however, Joel actually dropped out of school and moved into the Ewell's home with Dana. Okay... Both started making unusual cash purchases, like buying helicopter piloting lessons extravagant clothes there was like oh god they bought a fucking watch cars joel had no income though so this was really precarious dana even went forth and paid for his girlfriend monica's tuition and bought her a car like they were like wow shelling out the money now they both were interviewed and both said that they didn't really know each other and they weren't really friends but they were fucking living together so that didn't make any sense Yeah. I don't think that they knew that the cops were really watching them. So the cops decided, okay, this is fucking weird. Like, we see that you live together. Hello. They decided that they were going to do all the surveillance and cue all the vans and wiretaps. Because that's what was coming. (laughs) Because that's what they do. The police and the FBI and the government, they're always watching. They always be tapping in. So police discovered that the two actually communicated mostly through pagers and payphones. Now, kids, I know what you probably don't know what a payphone is. Oh, my gosh. But it's a dial telephone that was stationed all over the city for someone to use with change. I am making a point to describe what a payphone is because I literally had this conversation with a teenager who did not know what a payphone was. So I got really concerned. Has it really been long enough that, like... Younger kid, like teenagers, yeah, were not 
born during the payphone period. Let me throw that in there. A pager was before cell phones where you could call someone from a landline to their pager number. It would beep them, say, you need to call me. So pre-phone. It is getting to that point. We are not even that old. The 90s were not even that far away, but no one knows what a fucking payphone is or a pager. So I feel like if you don't know what a payphone is, you're definitely not going to know what a pager is. Exactly. So. Oh, my God. (laughs) This is old lady corner. Yeah. Ugh. So they were communicating with payphones and pagers. They would page each other. They would go find the nearest payphone and call one another, which is smart, but also... You can totally wiretap a payphone. <laughs> it's public. <laughs> yeah. Now, authorities had Dana's pager cloned. This is where it gets really weird. They had it cloned and they wiretapped his landline. So when they clone a pager, what they do is every time that person gets paged, a duplicate message gets sent to the clone pager. So they Makes can kind of see what's going on. In May of 1993... Joel was overheard by an officer speaking on a payphone saying, they don't have the evidence. They will try to catch you in a lie. Okay? Suspicious. Suspect. Joel's statement was obviously recorded. (laughs) And then they realized that he had said something else. They're just playing the game. Oh. Okay, so something all of that these regular things, people say. Right? All these things are coming together. They're using payphones and pagers. They're saying shit like they'll catch you in a lie. Suspect. Now, after going through the insurance payout, Dana stole from his sick grandmother's account, taking $400,000, leaving her only $2,000 to pay for her nursing home care. Oh, my God. What a piece of shit. Exactly. Unfortunately, he became her main caretaker and the, you know, beneficiary of her estate because she was basically an invalid. Right. Around this time, a, another friend approached the investigators with a tip. He stated that Joel had ordered some books and had them delivered to his, uh, his house, and he had accidentally opened the packages. And inside was a book on how to be a hitman and another one on how to build a homemade silencer. My God, maybe he's just a hobbyist. We don't know. Right. I mean, I had a copy of the Anarchist Cookbook when I was a young and and I never Are you made building a thing bombs? from it. <laughs> I mean, the only thing that I make that is bomb is my cooking. Other than mm, that, <laughs> nice. I am nice. not making bombs. I make yeah. crockpots for cooking, not for bomb making. <laughs> <laughs> so they were like, oh, all right, I think we might have enough to get these fucking dummies. So the one thing, though, that was eluding them was the murder weapon. So they had to do a little bit extra investigating around that, but they were pretty much sure that they had the guys. They knew that the murder weapon was a specialty 9mm assault rifle that was manufactured in Colorado. Now, this is the olden times. This is the early 90s that they're having to do this investigation, and they had to go back through company records. Company records showed that one rifle had been purchased by Ernest Jack Ponce shortly before April of 1992. So they were like, we'll take a look. We'll see. Jack Ponce just so happened to be a high school friend of Joel Radovich. Okay. One question, Jack at first denied buying the gun and then tried to say that he purchased it for himself as a birthday gift and that Joel had never seen or known about the gun. 
And then he went on to say it was actually stolen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so okay. he's changing his story a lot. Now, around the same time that they found this evidence out, investigators visited Dana at his dorm because he had to go back to school. And they informed him that they believed that Joel Radvovich had murdered his family. Now, upon hearing this, Dana said nothing, but the investigators noted that the color from his face was gone. He turned white as a ghost. Oh my god, okay. Once the detectives left, of course, still not knowing that he was being watched or recorded, he rushed to a phone and called Radvovich. On March 2nd, 1995, the police arrested Dana and Joel, along with Peter Radvovich, who was Joel's brother, and Jack Ponce. Now, Peter would make a deal with authorities in exchange for immunity and testify at the trial against his uh, brother and Dana. I'm not really sure 100% why they decided to include Peter Radvovich. I know that he had received some stuff from Joel and they were close, but I, in all of reading about this entire thing, I didn't really see what he had done or how he was involved enough to get thrown into this and arrested. Yeah. So that's a little confusing to me. I'm sure if it's like something really minor too, like that's the person police are going to want to pinpoint to turn on everybody else because it's mm-hmm. easier to get rid of those charges if they're like a minor, you know, misdemeanor charge yeah. versus like murder, right? Mm-hmm. Like you can't really get somebody off on murder for flipping, but yeah. You you could probably get somebody off on probation for like supplying a weapon and mm-hmm. they'd be easier to flip. Yeah. So he went on in his plea deal to tell the cops that he actually was the one to make the homemade silencer and that it was made out of a tennis ball and that he had welded it to the murder weapon and that the gun barrel was disposed of and the tennis shoes that Joel had been wearing during the commission of the murders was stashed away with a bunch of gun enthusiast magazines. So what wound up happening is they were actually finally able to deduce upon him saying that, that the green fibers that were embedded into Glee's skin was that of a tennis ball. Oh, okay. Now, Jack that makes sense. also flipped once he was arrested. He told them all about the gun. He admitted to buying it for Joel, but then denied knowing that that's what it was going to be used for. He also backed up Peter's statement that the two of them had disposed of evidence, so he had also disposed of evidence... He, too, was given immunity in exchange for his testimony. Uh, The barrel of the gun was later unearthed in a dirt field in Rosetta. So they finally had the barrel of the gun. They finally figured out the silencer and why nobody had heard anything. So it was all coming together. But unfortunately, the trial didn't start until 1997. Okay. The presiding judge did not allow any television cameras into the courtroom, but did allow a local radio station to broadcast the proceedings, so you can actually listen to that if you'd like to. Okay. Um, Now, Joel, (laughs) in a stupid move, or maybe a brilliant one, I'm not really sure, decided to take the stand and tell the entire story. Oh my gosh. I didn't realize this was going to be a common theme today. (laughs) Yes. So, in a quote from an article... Joel, acting as the trigger man for Dana, who did not want to wait for his inheritance nor share it with his sister, entered the Ewell home with instructions from Dana. Having previously shaved his entire body, 
Joel waited for 12 hours sitting on a plastic sheet so as not to leave as much as an eyelash behind. Oh my god, what? Exactly. So does this mean he took his eyelashes off too? No, I think he shaved like his eyebrows and his arms and everything. Oh my god. So Tiffany entered first and was the first one to die. She walked by Joel unaware and he shot her in the back of the head first, but then proceeded to like shoot her a bunch of other times. I don't know. Uh, This obviously was the first time he ever shot anyone. Uh, (laughs) She never saw him. Glee, however, did see him. And she, like, walked in and looked at him and was struck by a bullet and, like, literally bleeding, ran to escape from the door. But he caught up with her and just pumped bullets into her. He actually had her down on the floor and was standing above her, like, straddling her as he shot her repeatedly. Then he ran to the office and stayed there. Now... The fucked up part is that when they're talking about this, they talk about how she like looked him in the eye as he was shooting her, and it's just like, no, thank you. Wow, yeah. According to his testimony, however, though, she knew who he was because she briefly had met him when Dana brought him home a month earlier. Now, after killing Glee, he changed the magazine and the gun, put on fresh gloves, and waited for Dale which then he proceeded to kill immediately upon him entering the house through the garage door. So you can see, like, he pumped the sister full of bullets at first, like, kind of, like, nervously. Mm-hmm. And then he struck the mother, and she survived, so he had to go, like, full force, blasting on her, too. But then when you get to the father, he was, like, knew what he was doing, calculated, shot him only at once, and was, like, done with it. yeah. And you could see all the premeditation with the, like, shaving his body, sitting on a plastic sheet. Like, it was a lot of planning. On May 27th, 1998, eight months after the start of the trial, they found Dana and Joel guilty on all accounts. The jurors were unable to come up uh, with an agreement upon sentencing. So Joel was spared from death by two votes, and Dana was spared by only one. And they are serving life sentences. Now, if you're interested... Dana was sent to the Corcoran State Prison and is on the prisoner's pen pal list. So you can write to him. He is no now Hard a devout. Pass. Yeah, he's a devout Christian and he's trying to like do the right thing kind of bullshit. So if you look at pictures of him, he has like a big fucking cross on and like oh glasses and he's like trying to like live the life by Jesus. It's hard for me. I know I've said this before, but it is hard for me to feel like that is a legitimate effort. I know people can change, but like... Yeah. I'm sorry. Like, when you're in that situation, it's far less believable. And I'm sure mm-hmm. he's probably like, people can believe what they want. I believe in God, so whatever. Yeah. Joel Radovich was sent to the Mule Creek State Prison in Iona. Unfortunately, he still tries to get out. Dana has actually, like, accepted his life in jail and doesn't do anything to try to get out. hmm Now, Jack Ponce went on to become an attorney after being involved with this, so that's really great. Interesting. He continues to practice in Southern California. Joel's brother, Paul, now runs a company in L.A., so they seem to be doing, like, fine, even though they were involved in a fucking murder. Interestingly enough, Dana's ex, Monica, also went on to become an attorney, and she also practices in her own law firm in Central California. Oh, weird. So, that is the story of the Yule family murders. Boy, that was (laughs) pretty gruesome, man. Yeah. Well... If you're having a falling out with your family before you do something drastic, um, why don't you listen to this podcast? 
Just become goth instead. It's so much easier. (laughs) Just say gently, fuck you, mom and dad, and then we're all black and pout. It's very effective. (laughs) Hello, this is Margot P. And this is Margot D. And we are the Margos. We are the Margos. <laughs> co-hosts of the Book versus Movie podcast. We are the podcast that talks about films that are adapted from books. We read the book, we watch the movie, and then we decide which we like better, the book or the movie. Now I know what you guys are going to say. Duh, the book is always better than the movie. To which we always reply, have you ever read Jaws? Have you read Jaws? <laughs> we are not film experts or literary geniuses. Nope, we're just two friends who like to chat about books and movies. We really like to go for a deep dive into the history of the book and the background of the author and the trivia from the movie set. And most of all, we just like to have fun, so we never take ourselves or the books or movies too seriously. You can find us wherever you sign up for your podcast under the name Book Versus Movie. And on social media, you can find us at Book Versus and Movies. You just spell it all out. Hope you check us out soon. All right, guys, thanks for tuning into this episode. Uh, We've enjoyed being with you. But we also want to say thank you to the Elgin Fringe Festival and Side Street Studio Arts and the Blue Box Cafe for hosting us at the Elgin Fringe this year. Mm -hmm. And our friends from Ghostly Podcast who are in charge of all of the recording and everything. Yeah, they were amazing. Oh, oh my God. They had such professional equipment. They were on their shit. They gave us the... SD card, they're like, we got you. And I was like, well, we don't have us, but they do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we were wildly unprepared, I feel like. We're always unprepared. Compared to them, yeah. <laughs> but no, it was really great. We had a bunch of people come out. It was a good show. Had a good time. Um, a bunch of people, Vicky, we sold out, okay? We did sell out. <laughs> we, we sold out, sell out the Blue Box Cafe. Put that yeah. on our resume. <laughs> yes. So yeah, so thank you to everybody who came out. If you were able to come out, we are going to be releasing the French Festival episode in a couple of weeks. So look forward to that. That's really exciting. Do we want to talk about casting whimsy? Yeah, of course. I saw some stuff going on <laughs> on our uh, social media. So. It's true. It's true. So in case you have been living under a rock, we are brand ambassadors currently for Casting Whimsy Tea Shop in Woodstock, Illinois. They are a fantastic mom-and-pop tea shop. They currently are in a very cute little location on the square, but they just announced a little while ago that they're going to be moving slightly off the square to a magnificent large building that should be open at the beginning of next year. Ooh. Um, and they're going to have, like, a tea room. You'll be able to sit down. Currently, you can't do that in the space that they have now. But Oh, cool. Until then, until they move into their long, big, luxurious new place – You can shop them online. You can shop them in their tiny tea store. You can check out all the amazing baked goods that they have. Oh, my God. It all looks so so tasty. So many shortbread cookies, Vicky. (laughs) Is that – are you complaining or – No, I'm not. (laughs) They have uh, marshmallows, which are their marshmallows that are homemade that are actually very delicious. I've made s'mores with them. They're really great. I've done a couple recipe videos, too, that are going to be kind of popping up on our social media with Casting Whimsy products that are just amazing and delicious, and you should try them at home. But yeah, they have such good stuff. And if you love tea like we do, it's like necessary for my life. Yes. You can actually get a discount from us to you, extended. You can get 10% off an order, and that's in online or in person, either way. All you have to do if you do it online is to use BTC pod. If you go in person, you just say the bad taste crime podcast sent me <laughs> and they will give you a discount. 
Yes. That's good for everything in their shop the first time you shop there with the code. Yes. Um, But they ship to your house and it's very quick and it's amazing. And it comes in a really nice tin because it's mostly loose leaf. Um, So it's secure and wonderful. But definitely check out their stuff. It's so good. Yeah. So if you guys want to try some tea or some really delicious baked goods, you can find them at castingwhimsy.com. Is that right? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, cassiewimsy.com, or you can go visit them on the square in Woodstock, Illinois. Yeah, check them out. They got some really good looking stuff, so. Yeah. They do farmer's markets, too, so you can check their social media to see if they're at a farmer's market near you. They do travel around a bit, so. Awesome. I think that's all we have for this week. We do. (laughs) All of our our big stuff is done, and Mm -hmm. we're just trying to live it out to the end of the year. (laughs) God. And um, I feel like I'm not going to survive to 2022. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. You know, we'll get there with the help of all of you. Mm-hmm. And so with that, we will say our sound and editing is by Tiff Fullman. Our music is by Jason Zaszewski, the Enigma. <laughs> this has been the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. We will see you in two weeks. Goodbye. See ya. Ten young women have left their bodies on the hillsides along the highway. It was as if a wave of evil washed over this town.